brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Softrep.com, on time, on target. I hope that you guys enjoyed that last episode of uh, Fiction Authors while I was away in Pittsburgh. Uh, we have another fiction author coming on, who is Matthew Betley. Uh, first time coming on the show. We have his books over here, which I'm excited to hear him talk about the uh, thriller series that he's written and his life, and seems like a very interesting guy. Uh, so anyway, what have you been up to, man? I, this is the first time in a while I haven't seen you in a week. Uh, I've been <laughs> as crazy as that is. Well, I've been busy doing some stuff behind the scenes, working on a couple different stories, and also working on just the the logistics. Um, I just say plotting and planning for the future. Um, you know, expansions for the website. Um, working on some uh, some media stuff that we're doing. We're, we're filming a new episode of Inside the Team Room this yep. Saturday. Uh, I don't know if I'm at liberty to speak as to who the guests are, but, uh, well, I'll just say this much. It's a, you know, we've done a number of inside the team room episodes where they're just round table conversations. We did one with Rangers, one with seals, uh, one with special forces. Um, this one will be with people from the intelligence community. Very cool. So it's going to be a different vibe, a different flavor, um, and the uh, the guests we have on there come from some diverse backgrounds. Yeah, and several of which have, I actually think all of which have been on the podcast. I could say that. Uh, Except one of them. One of them is not. Maybe. There's one person, I believe, who has never been on, or at least hasn't been on with me. Um, and I've been here just about the whole time. Uh, speaking of, of what's going on with the site, I should mention that Daniel Bezier I saw is appearing on our friend Andrew Wilkow's CRTV show yep. uh, to talk about the fifth year anniversary of the Snowden leak. As for those who know, she worked <laughs> with Snowden. Lonely Ed. And uh, she actually just wrote a piece for Softrep you could check out commemorating the 29th anniversary of Tiananmen Square, uh, which was yesterday as we're recording this Sunday. And if uh, by the time people listen to this, you'll definitely be able to see the story on Softrep. There was a, a DIA employee, the Defense Intelligence Agency, got hemmed up by DOJ yesterday for spying for the Chinese, allegedly. Wow. Um, so I, I know Danielle wrote something about that. Cool. Looking forward to seeing that. So check that out on the site. I was going to mention something uh, totally different than, you know, special operations stuff, but I actually think it's appropriate because we had Dan Gordon on and talked about the whole conflict going on in Israel. Um, I don't personally use Instagram anymore for like a while now, but because... Fuck Instagram. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm just it's not for a 13-year-olds. It's exactly how I feel. It's a giant like ego thing, but... Because I use the SoftRep Radio and Instagram. The vet veterans on Instagram are like the most embarrassing thing in the world. I'm just <laughs> just going to throw that out there, bro. Like, we look like douchebags on Instagram, really. 
Many of many of whom, but uh, I, I, you know, if you are on Instagram, follow Soft Rep Radio. So that's the only thing that I do on there is you know that and Power of Thought. But you I know what I do, man. I, I post pictures of Dungeons and Dragons that I play with my daughter. That's the, like the only thing I post on there now. Yeah, I always see that in their models. <laughs> and, uh, so I do see though what's trending, I guess, in that search feature and like what our audience that I follow is checking out. And there's one thing that I, I. No, I do know more about than the average individual, so I actually think I could clear up some confusion on this. Uh, over the weekend, there were protests uh, on both sides of the Israel issue uh, in New York City in particular over what's going on. Uh, so there were pro-Palestinian people out there. There were pro-Israel people out there. Now, people are shocked to see on Instagram and on social media these Hasidic Jews out there with, you know, the Israel flag with a swastika on it, who are for, you know, the Palestinian side, they want to demolish Israel, and it's creating a lot of confusion. They're like, who the fuck are these people? people I guess people are a little naive about Hasidic Jews. Well, I, I could speak on the specifics of it, because much like how there are really particular parts of Christianity that definitely do not represent the uh, religion as a whole, or even Islam, the same thing, of course, with Judaism. So Hasidic Jews, I would say, are a minority in the Jew community, but then an even smaller minority in the Hasidic community are these people called Satmars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they basically, for I don't know the reasoning behind it, but there's a huge population of them in Brooklyn, uh, in like Williamsburg in particular. Uh, most Hasidic Jews are not Satmars. So like very, around the country where there's other Hasidic Jews, they're typically not Satmars. And their belief system is basically that Israel is like an illegal state. And they literally believe that like the Messiah has to come back and grant the people Israel. And until then, uh, there should be no Jewish state. So these are the people that you see who have actually met with Ahmadinejad. Like if you see pictures of Hasidic Jews shaking hands with him, um, you know, at these public events, they rally with the Palestinians. These are all Satmar Jews. Um, so I just, I figured I'd clear up like who these people are when you see it on, because I, I actually see it being, um, put out there, I guess, as propaganda saying like real Jews are not Zionists. And, but what you're talking about, yes, these are real people out there and they're, they are actually, um, I would say militantly anti-Israel, but at the same time, Part of their ideology is apparently like pacifism. They believe Israel is like a violent state. It goes against their biblical beliefs of like nonviolence, according to them. So they're this very small minor, very small but vocal minority who will be there anytime in New York that you see an anti-Israel rally. You will see these Hasidic Jews there, and that's who they are. Religion's a strange thing, my friend. It's yeah. like the crazy that crazy Christian group that goes and protests uh, soldiers' funerals. Yeah, the uh, Westboro Baptist yeah. Church. Which did you ever hear about the leader of them, um, Phelps, Fred Phelps, before he died? What about? Well, let me guess. Blowing lines of coke and little boys. No, this is pretty interesting, and you guys could look this up because before he died, I learned about this. Um, so they're all one family. The Phelps, it's all the Phelps family. They're just a giant family. And there's certain family members who have left and have, like, one of them appeared on Joe Rogan's show, and they're, like, regular people now. They they completely, uh, like, broken ties with the faith. Yeah, they go, they are, they, they totally go against what they stand for. Like, some of them are, like, pro-gay activists now, that type of thing. 
Uh, so anyway, Fred Phelps is the one who started the Westboro Baptist Church, and he died a few years ago. He was kicked out of his own Westboro Baptist Church shortly before dying, which people were puzzled as to why. And the what came out is I believe he went with one of his grandchildren to like a gay community center in the area, which probably was the most shocking thing in the world. And he basically said to these people, like pretty shortly before he died, like, you people are good people. I agree with what you're doing. Um, and I, like, I no longer believe these things. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, what brought that sudden change of heart about? I mean, was that it, I haven't read like enough. He, into, like he knew but... he was dying and <laughs> doing some self-reflection or something. Maybe. Yeah. I, I really that I haven't read enough into, but it was interesting that I saw that all come out. And like I said, I think it was one of his grandchildren who talked about this after uh, his death hmm. and was like, this is what happened at the end of his life. Weird. So, yeah, yeah, it's an interesting thing. And then there's also the, um, I posted about it in our little writer's forum. What about the uh, Christian group? Are they in Pennsylvania where they have like a religious ceremony with their AR-15? Oh, the Moonies. Yeah, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah, it's a Korean cult. They're here in New York, buddy. But the picture I saw, they were they looked white. In the picture. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, there's certainly white people oh, okay. who, who are members of it. They're heavily, um, it, see, th- this is the thing is the cult itself is heavily invested in the arms industry. Hmm. So that explains, it starts to give you some context of like why they're so militantly pro firearms. There's, there's a sort of financial uh, investment by the cult. Yeah. And it, it is str- like they literally, for those wondering, they're not just like a pro gun church. They literally have a religious ceremony with an AR 15. They, uh, yeah, they have a compound uh, of some kind not far from where I grew up in, um, in Terrytown in Sleepy Hollow, New York. And um, if you go actually the cemetery where my father is buried, uh, if you go walking around, you can see um, graves uh, with Korean names and, uh, you know, I was always curious about why so many of them were babies and why they were dying at such a young oh, wow. age. Yeah. Any reason? Do you know anything about that? I, I, I actually don't. I haven't I haven't really even thought about the Moonies in a long time. Um, I, I don't know if they're like anti-vaxxers or something like that. Mm. I mean, that could it could be one of those things or maybe they're like those people that don't believe in blood transfusions or but uh, they're they're a cult. There's some odd stuff going on there. Interesting. Yeah. So. I, I figured I'd give some background on on that. Just the reason why I'm not bringing this up out of nowhere. Like I'm seeing videos of these people and pictures trending on Instagram, trending on Twitter, and um, definitely some misinformation. That if uh, I guess just the way it's framed, if you don't really know anything about it, you would come across this and go, "Oh, there are like there's this big population of Jews against Israel." And no, it's a really, really, really small minority. That's just very. But vulnerable. then, wh- who are the? Um not, they're not um, Hasidics. They're uh, ultra-Orthodox, right, in Israel, that they won't serve in the IDF? Yeah, I, I think that that's just uh, like a religious exemption that they say, you know, uh, it goes against my yeah, and then uh, And then when the Israeli government made that call at one point, they're like, no, you have to serve in the IDF. And they, like, took, they flooded the streets. There's, like, hundreds, like 100,000 of these people in the streets protesting because they would not serve. Well, as ironic as it is, I, I believe there's also like a Satmar population in Israel. I'm sure. Which figure that out. Like they believe it's an illegal state, yet they still when want to live I, there. I was talking to an Israeli uh, about this, and he, he he's lived in Israel, of course, and also he lived in Palestine doing some of his graduate school work. 
and you're um, going to trigger someone who's going to say there's no such place as Palestine. <laughs> some pe- some people just like looking in the mirror and jerking themselves <laughs> off. You know what I mean? Like Palestinians are an invented people. Well, guess what, pal? So are Americans. Yeah. Like these are these national identities are invented. Yeah, they, drawn, <laughs> their borders are all really just drawn yeah, it's by all, some guy. <laughs> it, yeah, it's all made up. Uh, we all made we craft these identities for ourselves, but um. He, he was telling me that he thinks those those people, the ultra orthodox, are going to collapse the state of Israel eventually, hmm. because they're they they have like a hundred kids each per family, and they basically contribute nothing to society. I mean, that was his view, at least. Yeah, well, I've heard that said about the Hasidic population in general. I mean, I'd, I'd have to read it before I make this as a statement, but I've heard that like in New York, where there's a Hasidic population, that like they're the biggest abusers of the welfare state. Um, there's also been articles that some of them have like their own, they're not like legitimate, but police force, fire department, you could look this up and there was they, articles They also about, have a lot of pedophilia issues. I mean, it's, it's sort of like the Catholic church that you yeah. have this closed insular society. So, I mean, a lot of the little boys being abused and there's been one rabbi like went rogue and started speaking out about that. And he's, he's, you know, persona non grata now, of course. Um, and also, I mean, if you, look, I, I've, I, I live in New York City and I've been through, you know, some of those communities and uh, some of the, the, the inbreeding that's going on, like some of those guys are walking down the streets. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be mean, but like they're not right. And, and I'm sure it's because it's, it is an insular society and there, there's not enough, you know, <laughs> genetic material coming from outside the community. Some of these guys are like wandering around and like you can just tell they're not well, mm. you know. The the one thing I did see come out uh, a few years back about, like, their own policing. I don't even know what they call themselves, but you've probably seen it. Like, they have their own ambulances and police force. And Schools, I'm, and this is, everything, yeah. Yeah, this is not like a conspiracy. It sounds very conspiratorial, but it's not. But they were um, under fire for basically, like, pulling over black kids just riding around on bikes who are doing nothing yeah. wrong. Yeah, I, I have friends who won't walk through those neighborhoods because, you know, like like one friend of mine who, uh, she's a lesbian, and, like, she won't walk around there because, the, the, like, just the looks they get yeah. is, like, not... It's, it's not kosher, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have some emails to get to, but I don't want to, you know, keep Matthew Bentley waiting because um, he's on Skype right now. So I'll get to those after we... Uh, after we speak to Matthew, so right now let's get to him. We have a camera here that I, I that that's from the computer. What you're seeing, so yeah. I thought it was going to go to like our professional camera. I think I'd have to restart, but anyway, I'm here. Jack is here. Hey Matt, thanks for coming hey, on the show. Jack, how's it going, guys? We're Good. Sorry, I, I like I literally just got done doing a treadmill workout and pull ups. And that's why I message him like, shit, I got to get my workout in. That's okay, Matt. It's, yeah, well, uh, I, it's radio. You're all good. Yeah, <laughs> and I messaged Matthew before, and I was just, I, I said, uh, it's just like us. I, we, I'm pretty sure we don't care. You, look, you can so. do it in your PJs, really. I mean, <laughs> I, it's yeah, all good. Well, who says I'm wearing pants, you know? Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so for the first time on Soft Rep Radio, Matthew Betley, Marine Infantry Officer and author of the Logan West Thriller series. There's three books, the latest of which is Field of Valor, which just came out. The thing that I noticed, by the way, is like you write these pretty quickly. They they've come out in a pretty short time span, right? I so this is like I said, I'm I'm on the pace to do about one a year. Uh, that that's the plan. You know, it is a series. the The first book, Overwatch, came out in 2016, and, and uh, 
unless something goes apocalyptically sideways, we, we plan to put out one a year. Uh, I'm working right now on book four for next year. That takes for, some and, discipline. And, you know, it, it does. Uh, uh, but it, I, I love it. Uh, this is what I believe I was meant to be doing after everything that I've been through in my life. And uh, we'll see how it goes. Ultimately, the market dictates you yeah. know, because it's all about the readers. For sure. Well, uh, what is, what's your process? Do you like wake up every day and just set out to write a certain number of pages? Uh, well, so I, I, I'm, I'm a bit all over the place uh, right now. So I, I, I've got a family and I actually have a full-time job on top of it. Oh, wow. You know, I, I wake up every day around 5 a.m. I go into work. I come home in the afternoon and then I work out. Then I spend time with the family. Then I start writing sometime late in the evening after everybody goes down. And, and now my process itself is I'm not somebody who's outlined my books. I don't do that. I know what I want to write when I sit down to write it. Uh, I, when I first started this in, and, and had this idea in 2010, I bought this leather-bound journal, and I thought I'd take all these notes and do all this cool stuff. And I've looked back, and I have like <laughs> eight lines for Overwatch, like 12 lines for Oath of Honor. I somehow am able to manage large, large amounts of disparate information in my head. Uh, so, I, so I just sit down and go. You know, one, one of the other questions I always get is, well, what do you do like when you're actually writing? For me, I, I'm a very visual person. You know, I write these intense, violent, action-packed roller coaster rides from cover to cover. And I, I literally put on music scores to, like, these great action movies composed by, like, Hans Zimmer, Brian Tyler, Stephen Jablonski, John Williams, Michael Giacchino. I can go on and on and on. Lauren Balfe. And um, what I do is I actually see the action in my head. I hear the dialogue and I feel the emotion. I feel like I'm more of a scribe. All of a sudden, an hour is gone, and I got like three or four pages of material, depending on where I am in the book and in the sequence. So, you know, that just answered a ton of questions really fast. <laughs> do you do you ever have to like sit down and actually like map out the battle? I, I've done that in the past. So I, there are a couple awesome sequences in the new book, and I I did it with some toys. And I literally had Green like Army construction men. toys. And uh, some uh, cons- and, and some trucks and cars to reenact the sequence that takes place on the Baltimore Parkway towards the beginning of oh, the new sweet. book, Field of Valor. Yeah. So let's uh, let's back up a little bit. Tell people what we're talking about. So you've done three books. Can you tell us about this uh, this protagonist in your novels? Who he is, and you know what what's the the theme or the thrust of this series? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, as you mentioned, I'm a former Marine officer. I spent 10 years as what's called a ground intelligence officer, where I was trained as a scout sniper platoon commander, an infantry officer, an intelligence officer. And I was fortunate enough at one point to be privileged to to command an an elite group of Marines for a short period of time. Um, and, And then I'm also a recovering alcoholic, nine plus years sober. And I'm completely open about that. In fact, I always tell people in every interview, it's the most important thing that I can ever talk about, because if what I'm saying can resonate with one person, then it makes all of this worthwhile. Um, So what I I sat down to do in 2009, I was sober for six months. I was on vacation with my wife and I was reading this boring book, this international bestseller that had been recommended by Stephen King in an entertainment weekly. And I'll I'll, I'll never say what it was, (laughs) but but I got so bored. I no kidding was 
physically, viscerally angry. And I turned to my wife, like just ready to punch somebody. And I said, I can actually do a better job than this. I love that. And and, and I'm the kind of guy who has dialogue in his head. I fantasize about what I'm going to do to the guy who doesn't pick up after his dog, the guy who speeds like 60 in his school zone. You know, I play it out in my head. I'm like, Oh yeah, but if I do that, I go to jail. Okay, <laughs> I'm gonna put his head in the drill press, like that kind yeah. of stuff. So I said, okay, you know what? I'm gonna put this talent uh, that I think I have to good use. <laughs> and I sat down a year later, and I just wrote Overwatch over 18 months. Um, you know, and Overwatch, the first book, you meet Logan West, who is a former Force Reconnaissance platoon commander. You meet him when he's emerging from a blackout relapse. And he's forced to confront a mercenary sent by a Mexican cartel that's looking for an artifact that his force reconnaissance platoon inadvertently acquired in Fallujah in 2004. Ah, Triggers race across North America, Mexico, and Iraq. And I also tell an ambush sequence in a flashback in three parts, which really gives the origin of Logan West and his sidekick, John Quick. And that's how the series starts. Um, the second book, Oath of Honor, picks up two years after the events of Overwatch, and I introduce two new characters, Amira Cerrone and Cole Matthews, that people absolutely love. And then Field of Valor picks up six months after the events of Oath of Honor, and that's the new one that just came out. And that starts off with a gun battle, and it doesn't end for, I think, 383 pages. So, you know... Go ahead. I was just going to... I always ask this, like, when we had Brad Thor on, when we had Tony Tata on... Uh, would you say that these are standalone novels? Should people start with the first, or can they pick up Field of Valor and enjoy it? They can pick up Field of Valor and enjoy it. I do give like paragraphs and pieces of information referring to previous uh, books just to bring readers up to speed. Uh, but each one is so each one's a standalone novel, but it is part of an overarching series, and the characters do grow in each book because I think that's key. I, you know, I once heard people say that, oh, you should, you know, each book should be different, but the same. I agree. But I, I, as a reader, and and I don't write what anybody else wants to write. I literally write what I want to write every single time and and what I would want to read. And and I stuck to that. So I like having the characters evolve, you know, throughout the, the overarching story. So do you have an idea in mind that is there in your head a, uh, a plot arc across this series like either somewhere you're going i've got got books five and six i'm working on book four right now for next year um i've got 100 plus pages of that finished and i've already got books five and six plotted out in my head that's awesome that that, and that would take me through it what year is it 2021 i think wow do do, do you think like it is it like all building up to some sort of huge showdown in this series Uh, yeah no, no, not necessarily. The way I view it is I am writing, in, and I've used this phrase before, a, an adult literary amusement park where you have rides, right, it, like all throughout the park in different sections, but they're all connected mm-hmm. because, you know, you know, just the general theme of the amusement park. That's kind of how I view it. That's I do plan to do a couple standalone origin stories, especially for the new characters as well. So, you know, it's, it's like my own mini uh, Marvel universe, <laughs> except I'm not making billions and billions of dollars. <laughs> well, I mean, that's awesome if you can pull it off. I mean, some authors can do actually very few have been able to do it, I think. But when it comes together, I mean, it really comes together well. I hope so. I, you know, the readers seem to very much enjoy what I'm putting out so far. Very cool. So let's get into your uh, actual military background, because I think, as you know, this is uh, – 
special operations forces reports. So we have, you know, a lot of the guys on who, who are from different backgrounds. And I think you have an interesting background of leaving the corporate world and becoming Marine. I do. In fact, uh, I almost went to, uh, well, I should say I was looking to go to a top 10 law school. Uh, I was the captain of my mock trial team in college. We were 11th <laughs> in the country. They actually went on to win several national championships in mock trial of all things. Nice. Uh, I went to my, I went to Miami of Ohio, and I went back there two years ago on the first book tour and spoke to the entire class of, of uh, naval cadets in ROTC, and um, I went and visited my old coach. And, and you know, I graduated college in '94. And now they have multiple enormous real courtrooms built. They have multiple teams. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. We were like stuck in the sociology department in like some little like rundown room. Now they've got these huge facilities. Um, but at the time, again, I was I was looking to go into to law school, and I had one of those life changing events occur. And this was in 1998. I was at a movie theater, and to, to make a long story short, I stopped somebody from getting beaten up by this like young punk in the movie theater. And out of 400 people in a sold-out Saturday show, I was the only person who stood up and did anything about it. True story. Uh, the next day, it completely changed my outlook on things, and I realized I wanted to have some uh, do something where I'd have a more direct impact. And at the time, I'd also just won a state title in martial arts. So I figured, hey, why not just go into the Marine Corps? So I, I called the officer selection office in Columbus, Ohio. And no kidding, I think a year and a half later, I, I was in Quantico at officer candidate school. And here we are. <laughs> That's awesome. And yeah. so at that, at, following that is when you went into fiction writing and your career now as well. Well, yeah, exactly. When I got after 10 years of the Marine Corps, I, I got out and then I started, uh, you know, I, I just had that epiphany and, and, and that moment of anger. And I sat down and started writing, uh, you know, but again, it's taken what the fir- I started writing in August of 2010. And, and here we are almost eight years later, you know, with the third book coming out. And, and we still obviously have goals. You know, the goal is to make the New York Times bestseller list. We do have the movie deal uh, for the first book and i know that's moving forward as well but you know it, it, it this is a this is definitely an interesting career choice i found myself in right now yeah publishing is a harsh mistress is what i often uh, tell people oh i i have different words for it i'm not sure what i can say <laughs> you can say whatever stuff. you want on here so so it so it, it's fucking brutal is what it is <laughs> let me let me be honest it is it is absolutely brutal business um because the the market is saturated with a lot of quality thriller writers, their you, you know marketing dollars can sometimes be a challenge to get. You have, I mean, it's just it's it's a tough business, and uh, I'll never forget that two years ago when I was a debut author, I was at this event called Thriller Fest up in New York City with a bunch of other debut writers. There mm-hmm. were like twenty two or twenty three of us, and we got to spend a couple hours with the uh, New York Times bestselling author Steve Barry. But one of the things that he said, was, and it's true, was, uh, you know, there's like 22 of you or 23 of you in this room. And within a couple of years from now, there's only going to be like two or three of you left standing. And it, it's, it's true. Now, I'm very fortunate because I'm with Emily Bessler Books. I have one of the best editors and publishers in the world in the genre. Uh, but even then, it still for me feels like it's a, it's a grind every day. Would you say the ultimate goal is to be a Brad Thor where this is what you're doing full time? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, he's built a brand for himself. I mean, he's, he's approached it like a business and it's the same way that I approach it. Um, you know, he's obviously way ahead of me in his career. Yeah. You know, he's got his 16th or 17th book coming out. I'm on number three. So, yeah, I mean, he's, that's why I was saying before, it takes a lot of discipline what you're doing and, and what Brad Thor does. I mean, that's uh he's a machine cranking them out. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have to be determined. You have to be ambitious. You have to be perseverant. Uh, like in the military, you cannot get complacent. It, you know, as we used to say in the Marine Corps, complacency kills. Hell, it was even written on a barrier in Al Kaim. Complacency <laughs> kills because it literally does. Uh, you know, you, you have to want this. You, you really do because it, this business is set up to uh, cull the herd in a big way. Would you say your military background helps you with what you do because? When I look at the guys we've had on, you have AJ Tata, Tony Tata, who's a oh, former, Tony's a great guy, great guy, <laughs> former Army general, yeah. um, Anderson Harp, who's a former Marine, and then the best-selling guy in the genre, Brad Thor, is like myself, never served. So I'm just wondering, when you write these, do you think it it just helps you out that you have that background, you have the lingo down, you you know how Marines act? So my first question is, wait, you, oh, I didn't know you never served, but you're still rocking the beard, I see. <laughs> I've, I've, I'm the civilian here, and Jack is the guy who's you know, done it all. Ian is our <laughs> on-air talent. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> no, it's cool. <laughs> if you read my books, I'm very sarcastic, in case that wasn't obvious. Um, so wait, so what was the original question? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just wondering if, if does, your, does your military background lend uh, special credence to, to or gravitas to what you're writing that you're able to uh, articulate what uh, how Marines talk to one another, yeah, or, or how they act. Or even oh. I, I should add in there, make it easier, because when we had Brad Thor on, like he says that he speaks to the Luttrell brothers to say like, hey, is this accurate for Navy SEALs? I would think you don't have to worry about that. That is correct, especially when it comes to the way people in the military and, in particular, the Marine Corps talk to each other. You know, in the Marine Corps, we used to have a saying, if you're, like, not complaining, that's when people need to get worried or if you're not bitching about something because that's the – yeah, I mean, I see, Jack, you're laughing because you know it's true, right? I mean, especially if you're in the field in the middle of some – hard evolution marines are always complaining about something but when you get quiet then everybody better just stand the fuck by i mean that's 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 the reality so yeah i i try and capture all that in my books especially the esprit de corps the camaraderie the sacrifice uh you, you know and i try and do that part of what i write in a very realistic way and, and inject emotion so so for me now there are times though where i i've talked to my friends who are former seals or other services and said hey, I'm writing this sequence. Can you tell me if this is, here's what I think. And, and fortunately, you know, even though I, I wasn't a SEAL, I've been able, they've said, nope, that's, that's correct. I'm like, okay, good. At least I semi know what I'm talking about. You got to throw in some of the dirty jokes. I mean, we're notorious for the penis oh, yeah, jokes. Absolutely. And, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so Jack, I'm sorry. What's your background? I, I, I was in the Army, uh, in Ranger Battalion, and then Special Forces. Okay. Uh, so I was in for eight years. And then I've been doing this job for eight years. Okay. Good to go. So were you on the white soft side of the house or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ranger battalion and SF. Okay. Good and as well as a f- fiction writer. So much like yourself. Yeah. yeah I've written Next. three novels. Um, I'm actually working on, um, on the memoir now for, uh, for the publisher. So I'm, I'm selling out and going legit now <laughs> with an actual <laughs> publisher. Oh, um, good to go. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just buckle down. You know, like I said, you're hearing me talk. It's, you know how hard yeah. it's going to be. Oh, yeah. 
Get, getting into something you referenced before that's more deeply personal to you, the, the issue of alcoholism, I wanted to get into that. And I think it's great that that you're out there and vocal about it. And it reminds me of, you know, we had Buzz Aldrin on the podcast. I read his book, Magnif- Magnificent Desolation. Um, he's written books prior, but Magnif- Magnificent Desolation in particular focuses on his alcoholism, his depression. And the thing that was interesting to me is he came out there and talked about it openly at a time when the people who were running his career basically said, don't talk about this, it's going to destroy your career. And I think the more people like you come out, even though you may be obviously a smaller voice than a Buzz Aldrin, more people will say, you know what, this is okay to talk about. No, absolutely. You know, all I can do is, uh, as a recovering alcoholic, one of the first things you realize is that you have, all of a sudden you have self-awareness. You know, I joke now that I'm a better Marine officer now than when I probably was in. And I was a, I was a good Marine officer. Uh, you know, I wasn't what we call a water walker or anything like that. But, you know, I did my job. And when it came to, like, certain things, I was really good at. Uh, but, you know, being sober, it provides you with that self-awareness that I didn't have. Uh, so, you know, for me, talking about it, it you know, the Marine Corps instilled in me the discipline that I needed to finally face my issue and get sober. I mean, there's no answers or buts about it. If I weren't, you know, didn't have that from the Marine Corps, there's no way in hell I'd be able to, uh, I'd be sober today. You know, I realized I had a problem. I was getting ready to be promoted to major. I was getting ready to go to next, my next career level school, and I was miserable. And I just realized that I needed to address this head on or I was going to end up dead, alone, miserable, unemployed, all of the above. And uh, so what I did was I actually I, I called the Marine Corps um, uh, down at Fort Myers. They have I can't remember what it is that like their their alcohol treatment facility program. And I ended up going to Andrews Air Force Base for five and a half weeks in their intensive outpatient program, driving down every day. Wow. And uh, and since then, my sobriety stuck, you know, and, and, and I'm very thankful for that opportunity. There were, it was really unique because there was a, a group of individuals who were incredible overachievers and ambitious. Uh, there was like literally the Air Force pilot of the year in the program with me. Uh, you know, there was a, a, a nurse from Bethesda Hospital. There, there were, it, it was a bunch of hard-charging folks that, you know, realized they had a problem when it came to alcohol. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said earlier, that it's the most important thing that I can talk about because there was a point where I never thought I'd be able to get sober. Like, I just didn't think that was in the cards for me in any way, shape, or form. But I did. And, and, and I look back and I just I, honestly, there are times where I can't believe I was the guy I used to be. I still talk the same. I still have the same mannerisms. I still but like my priorities have changed completely. I'm sure there's people who probably didn't like me then who still don't like me now. But, you know, hey, so be it. Well, it's incredibly important for you know people like you who have been successful to come out and talk about that. And same thing like you were mentioned with Buzz Aldrin. I mean, we had um uh, on here one time, uh, Tom Spooner, who is a Delta operator. He was one of these guys. He did like 12 back-to-back deployments. And he's very oh candid God. and open about how he struggled with PTSD. And, um, you know, when somebody like that comes out, it, what it does is it gives like uh, mental permission to other people who are suffering to like, oh, okay, if that guy had that problem and he's way tougher than I am, and it's like, okay, now it's okay for me to admit that I need to get help too. So, I mean, I think it's great that there's people like you, Matt, that are kind of like, you know, you can pull yourself out of this. It's possible. 
Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, and I've been very fortunate that, and I use this platform to to spread that message. It's like the twelfth step of AA. Anyhow, you know, spread the <laughs> yeah. So 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 I try and talk about it as much as I can, and it's why I wrote my characters the way that I did. Because he's, uh, you know, I, I from what you were describing, I mean, the, the the protagonist of these novels also struggles with alcoholism. At the yeah, at the uh, at the very beginning of Overwatch, he does so. Yeah, and uh, I, you know, when I sat down to write, I literally took the old adage of write what you know to heart. So I split my personality down the middle, and I made Logan the uh, dark, you know, re- dealing with alcohol side of me, and then the uh, you know John Quick, the self-deprecating, sarcastic son of a bitch that he is, which is pretty much what most people see, unless I get upset. You know, most people aren't going to ever see the the Logan West side of me, unless something's gone really wrong. Yeah, I kind of did the same thing. I mean, uh, the the character I wrote is uh, sarcastic and, and cynical, like I am, but he's also just like way more badass than I am. I mean, I think oh, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm 46. I'm not running and gunning. That's just not in the car. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, hold on, let me get a segue here, guys. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm at that point. Where like, nah, I just want to drink mimosas and hang out. You know, yeah. take my wife out to dinner. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And hope shit doesn't go down at the restaurant, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny, man. Um, so if people want to check out the latest book, which, as you said, is a standalone, but they could, of course, start with the first in the series. But the latest is Field of Valor. Just came out, what, last month, I believe? Yeah, uh, it came out May 22nd. Yeah, so pick that up. And we'll uh, put the uh, link to the book in there, too, so people can check it out. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it's available everywhere. Uh, you know, your typical usual suspects, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, iTunes, Books A Million, uh, all the military stores. Yeah, it's also available in audiobook. Uh, very fortunate since the very beginning of the series. Simon Schuster has this fantastic narrator named George Newburn. He was one of the actors on ABC's show Scandal. Nice. He played a he played a character named Charlie, and he's an awesome guy. That's and cool. he he's just like the perfect voice for for the series. And I've told Simon Schuster for as long as I'm writing his, and as long as George is doing it, please have him do it because they're just fan, it's fantastic, you know. That's great. Yeah. So the website is MatthewBetley.com, B-E-T-L-E-Y, at Matthew Betley on Twitter. And I was going to ask you before we started, you said that you were um, off somewhere on the road uh, in the coming days, right? Correct. Yeah. Tomorrow I, I get on the road and I'm heading down to Fort Bragg for an event on Thursday. And then from there, as soon as I finish at the the PX I head to North Carolina to camp. Well, that is North Carolina. I head to Camp Lejeune over in Jacksonville for an event at their PX on Friday. So, so those are the next two stops on, on the book tour. So you just do like speaking engagements, signings, that type of thing? So it's actually kind of funny. So at, at independent bookstores or like a Barnes & Noble, I'll speak. Um, but at a military event, it just depends on the venue. Uh Sometimes they will literally just put you at a table in the front of the PX and, you know, here you go. Oh, I know. Jack's laughing. It's true. I was just at the Fort Meade PX and it was a really good event. I had a lot of people come by, but it's like you're like you're selling sham wows, you know. (laughs) Meet the author, Matt Bentley. (laughs) Exactly. I'm sitting there going martini, zucchini, bikini, and they're like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? Um so, you know, but, but if, if, yeah, and that's the other thing. If you do these events and you're not outgoing, you will suffer yeah. because you know how military folks are. 
I remember what I was like when I was a Marine at the PX. I would walk in and I would just be like on a mission to get deodorant. I don't care about some dude sitting at a table. So you have to be outgoing. Fortunately, they do a good job trying to advertise. Um, so it really just to answer your question, it just depends on the venue. I've had anywhere from I have had one event in three years where no one showed up. And that was a really nice place. And it, it turned out it was like the, the nicest evening they'd had in Chicago and no one was coming into bookstores and it was, you know, I got zero, but then I've also had 85 show up. It just depends on the venue and the timing. Well, people are going to be listening to this podcast yeah. for over the next couple of weeks. So, I mean, why don't you just give us the rest of the dates for your, for your tour? Oh, all right. In that case, hold on. Let yeah. Me yeah. Pull. Please let the people know where the, where they can go meet you. Yep. So, well, okay. So I'm going to be, uh, like I said, at, uh, Camp Lejeune on Friday, Fort Bragg on Thursday, and then I believe I have a bit of a break and my next, uh, hold on a second. Let me pull up my schedule. And is, of it, course, is this on your website, you, by the way, if people want to see the location yeah, and all that? Absolutely. Cool. The, you know, if they just go to matthew.betley.com and pull up the, uh, events tab, okay, so they are all listed there. I know that, um, I'll be in Rhode Island at the end of June on, on June 28th in Westerly, Rhode Island. And then I will also be at the Marine Corps Museum, which I'm really looking forward to on nice. June 30th. That's a Saturday from 11 to 2 p.m. So if any and of if, you listening make it, definitely say to Matthew, hey, I heard you on Soft Rep Radio. That would be pretty cool. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Like I said, just I always tell people, just come out and harass me. Ask me anything you want. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, uh, I'll answer any question, often to my wife's chagrin. <laughs> <laughs> It'll happen though. I, I definitely think you'll you'll meet some people from this audience because they do come out to book signings sure. and all that stuff. And I mean, we're a worldwide audience, so there's people in all those locations. Excellent. That's well, and I believe I appreciate it. As an author, you, I can't do what I do unless people enjoy what I do. Exactly. Are, any chance you're going to be in New York City at some time? We'd love to have you in the studio, man. Oh yeah, oh, you guys are up in New York City. Yeah. I didn't yes, realize sir. that. I, yeah. No. I, I, in fact, I, I'm. At some point, going to have meetings with my publisher since they're headquartered up there. That's where Simon Schuster is. It definitely, I'll definitely swing by the studio. Yeah, we we might even know a few same people. They're the ones who are publishing my book, my memoir. Um, oh, which uh, which imprint or uh, vision? I'm actually not sure which imprint it is off the top <laughs> of my head. I just. That, I, um, do you know your editor's name, Jack? Yeah, I know her. her. <laughs> that's uh, okay. but that's the person I go through. So. Um, yeah, next time you're in the city, definitely feel free, uh, hit us up and we, uh, we'd have you in studio actually. That'd be cool. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I'm all for that. That'd be great. Yeah, definitely. So let's do it. Uh, keep in touch. I have yeah, your, uh, I should say publicist's email, but you know, if, if, you know, feel free to shoot me an email personally and we'll make it happen. Cool. Yeah. So the book is Field of Valor, the latest. And once again, MatthewBetley.com at MatthewBetley on Twitter, Really appreciate you having you on, man. This was great. No, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. It's always good to uh, talk to like-minded individuals. <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, thanks, guys. Have a good one. All right, you too. Really enjoyed having Matthew on. Hopefully, we'll get him in studio. I, I like getting guys in studio. And uh, we have a few people coming in studio later this month, early next month. Uh, of course, there's only one club out there with gear handpicked by special operations military veterans from several branches, and that, of course, is Crate Club. Past items we've had in our crates have been Emerson Knives, a Blackhawk, Industrials Medical Pouch, and cool stuff like a custom playing card set with 
an exclusive photo shoot we did of some models with guns. Uh, we have different tiers of membership depending on how prepared you want to be, and gift options are available as well. So you can check that all out at CrateClub.us. Once again, that's CrateClub.us. For you dog owners, check this out. You're going to love it. We've just partnered with Kuna. They have a team of trained canine handlers picking out a box for your dog each month of healthy treats and training aids. It's custom-built for your dog's size and age as well. The products are U.S.-sourced, all-natural, and not only promote a healthy diet, but also promote being active with your dog. Um, I'm seeing that guys on the site who have dogs are loving them, guys like Nick Kaufman and Scott Whitner. Uh, and Nick Betts, I know you have a dog. Do you have a Kuna box yet? No, not yet. I'm still and, waiting. And yet you're the editor in chief. And I, uh, I, I'm still waiting on my on my dog crate. Where is it? Yeah. So I I will say that the guys who have gotten it, um, like Nick, both Nicks, and uh, all those guys are loving it. You can see the stuff they've put up on Instagram, which is really cool. Um, but you can check that all out at kuna.dog. That's kuna.dog. It's efficient for you. Your dog will appreciate it as well, of course. And that's spelled C-U-N-A dot D-O-G. And last, as a reminder for all those listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops channel premiere show, Training Cell, follows former special operations forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops channel, and that's at specopschannel.com, and take advantage of a limited-time offer of 50% off your membership. That's only $4.99 a month. And also, the app is now available. So check out the Spec Ops Channel app, which our web developer, Chris, did. He does an awesome job with everything. So check out Great Club, Kuna, Spec Ops Channel. A lot of great stuff happening at Hurricane Media, as well as uh, some things in the future that I believe we cannot yet talk about. There's things brewing, (laughs) man. I have my hands in many sinister soups. Yeah. should know that by now. So, uh be on the lookout for that. Um, with that, as I said, we had some emails that I wanted to get to, um, but first wanted to do that interview. So let me make sure I have those all pulled up. Uh, what was the other one that I had here that I don't know where it is? Um, where's my hate mail, Ian? Oh, no, it was a hate review, which I read. Where's my, my hate review? <laughs> um, all right, let me just see which is the one I just, not the one. Okay, the one from George. Yeah. All right. All right, so getting into these emails, um, the first of which is from either Jorge Torres or George Torres. I've seen people pronounce it either way with the J, because I have a friend who uh, goes by George, but it's spelled the Jorge way. Anyway, um, from Mr. Torres, hey, Sofrep, love the two shows a week and the guests you guys are bringing on. My question is for Jack. I know that the Ranger Regiment hires from all types of MOS, But if someone was to go in the Army as an intelligence analyst and then later try to join the 75th, would that person work as intel analyst in support of Ranger missions, or would that person go through RASP and go combat operations as well? You would be working—I mean, you're going to be working in your MOS regardless. Um, So if you join the Ranger Regiment as a cook, you're going to be working as a cook. Um, it's funny how often you get these kinds of questions. I mean, if you want to go on combat operations, you need to be an 11 Bravo or an 11 Charlie or a combat medic, uh, forward observer, 
Um, what, who else is thrown in there? RTO, maybe. Um, all those kind of cats. So, yeah, if you want to be a combat dude, go into a combat MOS. Um, if you're an intel analyst, you're going to be doing, um, you know, analyst work for the Ranger Regiment. And um, that's kind of that. That should answer it. Okay. Not, not, that, not that that's a bad job. You yeah. Know? If you want to do intel, you want to do soft intel, go for it. This next one is from Alex, once again, sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com. I, I often get tweets of, like, where to send these, so I always try to remind you guys, um, any questions, don't, like, DM them or tweet them. Send them to softrep.radio at softrep.com and keep them brief like these. These are Send good. Ian your hate. Yes. S- send me your love. <laughs> um, all right, this is from Alex. Ian and Jack, first briefly, the most recent few dozen episodes have all been nothing short of awesome. So much knowledge from so many incredible people, it becomes harder and harder to listen to certain other podcasts, which only seem to scratch the surface. Oh, no, you guests. didn't. Oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> uh, with each episode you guys put out. Thank you, man. Um, my question is mostly for Jack. For someone very highly interested in entering into SF, how can I go about balancing the frustrations and paradoxes of U.S. soft operations as voiced by Eben a few episodes ago and by plenty of other people, sources, podcast episodes with the sentiment from so many current and former soft guys that the job, mission, and lifestyle are certainly overwhelming, worth it? I have never been one to wear rose-colored glasses about the U.S. government and military undertakings, and I have people like you to thank for giving a more realistic view of these things. But I've never been there, done that, and I'm so and I and am so and so I am confused, sorry, when those who have been there and experienced these frustrations firsthand still can say, I love the job, recommend it to you, and I would do it again and I would do it all again in a heartbeat. Does the fun outweigh the rest? That seems off putting. Uh, best Alex. Well, I guess first and foremost, what I would say is, you know, the Army offers four-year contracts. You might even be able to get like a three-year contract or a two-year contract. So you don't have to sign up for the full Monty and do 20 years. You can go in for four years, um, which within those four years, you can go into the Ranger Regiment or Special Forces um, if you want. And, and you can get a taste for that and see, you know, if is, is it something you want to stick around and do? Is it, do you want to get out and go to college? You know, you don't have to, you can go in and get a taste of it and see if you like it or not, you know, before making a 20 year commitment to it. Um, whether or not, I mean, it, it's kind of a difficult question. Like does the fun outweigh all the bullshit? I mean, you get to do things in the military that you can't do anywhere else. You know, um, there's training you can't get anywhere else. There's, uh, you know, doing the things we did, riding around on cool helicopters and fast roping and shooting all these different weapon systems and learning about combat and how to how to conduct war and how to go after targets and then actually deploying overseas and doing it. Um, there's nothing like it. So there's and there's also nothing to compare it to. But w- how much does the bullshit outweigh the fun? I mean, it's like it really depends on the group of guys you get in with. It, it has so much to do with the dudes in your platoon and the guys on your team. Um, even if you have a really shitty chain of command, the job might be bearable just because the guys you work with on your team are so squared away and they're such good dudes that you can put up with it and disregard some of the BS. Um 
but then, then again, maybe not. Maybe the, the morale in your unit is just so low and your chain of command is so bad that even when you work with good dudes, it can't compensate for all the bullshit that's getting thrown at you guys on a day-to-day basis. So, I mean, it, it, comes, it very much comes down to people and personalities. Um, and I was very fortunate to work with some terrific guys. And, and I, I'm actually like having my little... Uh, self-reflective moment as because I'm writing this book about, you know, stuff I did in the military. And I mean, I just worked with like some terrific NCOs and some really good officers. I smack talk officers all day, (laughs) but I mean, I had some great platoon leaders, some great company commanders. Um, I had a, a a really good, um, team leader, uh, when I was in special forces guy, uh, who really looked out for the boys, um, but then the flip side of that is, you know, I also worked with alongside and, uh, and for some douchebags, you know, um, you know, and we, I worked under some really weak, shitty leadership at, at different points. So all I can, I guess all I can offer up to you, a question like this is experiences may vary. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and, you know, it, it comes down to personalities and people. I, I think I very, I very rarely hear people say, though, that they regret joining the military. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I believe he said it because I'm thinking back. I think the only person on this podcast who I, I'm pretty – I haven't listened to it in a very long time, but I believe said they regretted joining the military was Michael Behenna, the guy who served time in uh, Fort Leavenworth, right? Yeah. For, um, you know, that'll do it, I guess. Um, yeah, that which makes sense. I mean, he was there for the, years, the, I believe, like close to five you know, the, years. The military is a great experience, I think. I, I think it's an important experience. Uh, it's an important experience for, I think, young men to have. Um, and I, I, I recommend people take a look at it and see if it's right for them. Um, the only people, I mean, I definitely don't regret joining the military. I, I've actually only over the last like few years have I even... I've begun to question a little bit, and but that's because of other things like friends of mine who have committed suicide and things like that that kind of make me like, oh, I'm like, damn, how did this happen? But I, I certainly don't regret joining the military. The only people I know who really regret joining the military are like these like social justice warrior veterans who like they're they're all like neo communists now and oh, I hate America and it's like the constant hand wringing <laughs> you know it's fucking ridiculous but those are the only people I know who like hate the military they're, they're people who hate our country anyway so some of those people I, I think might not even regret it though because they'll still say like oh the experience shaped my worldview and well they'll definitely trade up and like I was a veteran I was there <laughs> yeah. therefore. Fuck America. You know, they're doing the same thing that the people that um, that, that they complain about, the, the more conservative veterans who are like, I'm a veteran, you know, therefore everything I say is valid. You know, they're all kind of everyone is kind of using their veteran status as capital to to try to build on some sort of weird agenda. Um, which the, the latest of which I'm thinking of is who's the Navy SEAL again who was out there on Twitter, who basically was like who he came out there said that something like 90% of PTSD cases are bullshit. And he, he like oh, doubled down on that. That was Higby. That was Higby. Yeah, that's right. Carl Higby. Yeah. And he doubled down on that on Twitter. And he did have the whole thing of like, I'm a veteran. I know this. I can say this almost, you know, so. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually quoted in a Wall Street Journal article um, talking about veterans making false claims to VA 
and how they're they're fucking the system and, and by extension they're fucking veterans who really need help so i mean those things exist i, I absolutely don't deny it and I, I i'm quoted in that article because i saw it firsthand my first my freshman year of college when i was at uh, mercy in dobbs ferry and i saw these vets that, and they came up to me and they're trying to convince me to make false claims to va they're like you, you're not getting money from va like look you just need to go tell them something's wrong with you go tell them that your <laughs> penis doesn't work I'm like, what? They're like, yeah, there's no test they can do to see if your dick works or not. So just go tell them that your dick doesn't work. And I'm thinking like my my wife at the time, she was like six months pregnant. I'm like, how the fuck is that going to work? But yeah, they're they making all these fraudulent claims. That, that stuff exists, but like that's a really bold statement to make to say that. What did he say? Like 99%? It was something, 90, yeah, it was something up there. I'd have to of, pull it off. But. I mean, PTSD is a real thing. A, a lot of guys are suffering from it. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, I, we shouldn't disregard, you know, people's VA claims, you know, just out of hand or, um, or minimize, you know, what these guys are going through. And uh, I see a lot of a lot of people out there, a lot of veterans. It's it's not like civilians. This is our, our drama and our baggage. Um, you know, veterans are really good at attacking each other. We don't have a war anymore to fight, so we just fight each other. Um, and uh, I don't know. I, th- I think it's becoming a fucking mess. Um, but there's there's a lot of dudes out there who are suffering um, from PTSD. And I, we, we have not done a very good job of grappling with it. Maybe mm-hmm. we're getting a little bit better, but there's a lot more work to do. And I, I think, uh, I see, I watch these, uh, these vets, these vets who are like on the left and on the right and they attack each other. And when I look at them, what I see on both sides is guys who are suffering and they're actually going through the same thing they're having troubles with ptsd with tbi and generally assimilating back into society and then that gets colored by either the left-wing shit or the right-wing shit but really it's the same thing they're the same person they're the same person that cannot integrate back into their own culture and they're struggling with the same shit and so it's not really a a left-wing thing or a right-wing thing that's just kind of the window dressing um but they, these dudes, these vets, they attack each other over like politics and, and weird shit like that. It's like, you know, you guys actually have a hell of a lot in common. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm surprised they don't see that. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, you know, the uh, polarized political climate. It creeps into everything. And, and toxic uh, social media culture that yeah. turns us all into assholes. That it does. That it does. Uh, I, we haven't done a throat punch of the week in a long time. Oh, this I, guy has it coming. Yeah, I thought this was an obvious one. So this guy, Nathan Larson, is running for Congress in Virginia's 10th district. Um, and I pulled up why we're giving him the throat punch of the week. This is from The Hill. Admitted pedophile rapist running for Virginia, Virginia congressional seat. Uh, Nathan Larson, a self-declared racist and ex-con who advocates for pedophilia and rape, is running for Congress in Virginia's 10th district. While speaking to HuffPost on Thursday, the 37-year-old independent candidate from Charlottesville told the publication he identifies as a, and I've never heard this term, quasi-neo-reactionary libertarian who is open (laughs) about his pedophilia so as to remain unconstrained by political correctness. And I would not put pedophilia 
under political, you know, people against polit- uh, pedophilia under people who are politically Political correct. correctness is why I can't <laughs> rape children. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people are tired of political correctness and being constrained by it, Larson told the outlet. People prefer when there's an outsider who doesn't have anything to lose and is willing to say what a lot of people what's on a lot of people's minds. So he's basically trying to put himself in that, you know, Donald Trump category. And there's a huge difference between Donald Trump, who says what's on a lot of people's minds, and you... You know, well, this was this was interesting because I, I read this article. And what Huffington Post did was they looked at his congressional website and they realized that it was being run by the same like IP address or something that was running a couple other websites. Yeah, which and, it, and it, those websites it, it was like Incel Apocalypse. It mentions them right here. It's, yes, dot org. I don't even know how you'd pronounce that or what it means. And then IncelApocalypse.today. And Online he, forums for pedophiles and violence-minded misogynists. And he has a, a daughter that he doesn't have custody of. Oh, and I he, would hope not. And he's on, that, he's on that website talking about how he should be able to rape his daughter and all sorts of cra- – this guy is beyond any kind of like alt-right or reactionary or right-wing or anything. This guy is a fucking psychopath. Yeah. Like we are, we are right past any kind of political bullshit. Not even – like this guy is just a fucking lunatic. So the thing that I would say is the reason this needs to be mentioned beyond just like condemning this and giving a throw punch of the week is I do worry in this guy's congressional district if there are not people out there vocal saying who this guy is, there are people who go to the polls and just go, oh, Republican, I'm a Republican. Did did this guy have any chance at all of winning in his district? That I have no idea of, but I do... um, Let's see. Let's see if it says uh, Larson first ran for Congress in 2008. Um, however, it was, he was later disqualified after threatening to kill either former President George W. Bush or former President Obama, according to the Post. He spent 14 months in federal prison for the threat. He Good. says that Adolf Hitler is a white supremacist hero. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know his guns, chances. Guns don't kill people. Feminists do. Yeah. I, I don't know his chances. I mean, if he's not a felon, I would assume he can run. It's within his right. Wasn't this um, – it, it was something that he wasn't allowed to run, but then the, the governor of the state overturned it and said, like, oh, n- now it's okay or something. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the point, I, I was reading something about it. The point being, because I, I haven't looked into this. I've just seen this article. But, like, if this guy is on a primary um, ballot, I would just hope that or, – or worse, on any type of ballot where it's just Republican versus Democrat, I, I would just want people to be informed – this is who you're voting for. It has nothing to do with the party. Like, whoever's opposing this guy, vote for them. Well, I, I you know, what was really, like, seals, seals the deal, uh, the, the, the cherry on top of this whole thing is that when the Huffington Post contacted him to talk about it, he didn't, like, hang up the phone. Yeah. He didn't, like, get make angry denials. He just seems like he was nonchalantly, like, yeah, we should be able to rape women and keep slaves. Like, why not, bro? Like, that, he's a fucking psycho. Like he really thinks there's nothing wrong with like pedophilia and all this other crazy shit. Yeah. So I just don't want people to dismiss it and go, "Oh, this guy could never win because you you never know." So just if you're yeah, in the district, you never sure. know. Well, I, I remember learning, you know, when I was younger about David Duke running for um, Congress. I think he's ran for Senate. He's run for a lot of things. I think he tried to run for president at some point. But like at a time in Louisiana, he actually did have a chance of getting a U.S. congressional seat. So you never know. There are these districts in the country with people who share crazy ideologies. 
Um, so just I guess if you are someone who's a listener and you happen to be in the 10th district of Virginia, I, I highly doubt most people in the 10th district of Virginia shared this ideology. I don't think there's any <laughs> district in the country where people do. But like, just make sure you don't vote for him. Vote for whoever's opposing. Make sure you go to the polls and vote for whoever's opposing this guy is my main point. If he's on the ballot. Uh, I, I you don't want to normalize pedophilia, Ian? No. Incel apocalypse, bro. Can't, can't say I do. So throat punch of the week goes to Nathan Larson. And um, in good news of people who run for uh, Congress, you guys might remember we had Navy SEAL Dan Crenshaw on episode 316, who seems like a great guy. Uh, this happened a while ago, but I just never got around to... Um, Mentioning it and the fact that I was going to do throw punch of the week for this guy made me remember. Um, yeah, congratulations to him by like a landslide. He won the um, primary in Texas second district, second, second congressional district. So basically at this point, he has to run against the Democrat. I, I believe he's in a very Republican district because I think he primaried out someone who is like a standing uh congressman there i think or or i think who was leaving the district at that point um and retiring so you know if the seat was held by a republican most likely dan will win um but congratulations to dan yeah. on winning his That's great. primary you know when we talked to him i remember him saying you know this was his endeavor and he feels like this is uh, a way he can continue to serve his country so yeah and, I mean, and we do often talk about that we'd like to see more vets in office more special operations vets not that's not to say that they all are going to do a great job. <laughs> no, no, because we've heard of, uh, you know, Eric Reitens and the stuff that went down with him. So I, I, I have mixed feelings about it because I, I really, um, I, on one hand, yes, I, I definitely want more veterans in government. I want people who have served, people who have that military experience, people who know what the troops go through. You know where the rubber meets the asphalt. They, it's not like I feel like for a, a George Bush or an Obama or a Donald Trump, it's all kind of abstracted. Like they can't; those people cannot understand what it's like to be in combat. Although, when you say George Bush, George W. Bush, George H. I'm talking H. W. Bush did serve. H. W. did serve in combat um, in and, World and War and II. And the CIA. Yes. Um, uh, w was a uh, privileged na- National Guard pilot or something like that. But um, I, so for that reason, I, I do want more veterans in uh, in office. But then consider all of the things I've said over the last hour about veterans fighting each other and, um, you know, the crazy right wing veterans, the crazy left wing veterans, how we all attack each other, how we behave like 13 year olds on Instagram. The veteran community is not like all like fucking roses and sunshine. Kumbaya, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I have mixed feelings about it because we also carry with us a lot of um, arrogance and hubris, and um, you know we carry our egos around in a kit bag. So, I personally would like to see more in general. I mean, because right now, who do you see in office? It's a lot of lawyers. Like, I personally yeah. prefer, yeah. generally speaking, it doesn't mean everyone is great, but generally speaking, who would I rather see hold those spe- seats, special operations veterans, or like more or just, lawyers? Or just military veterans. Yeah. You know, people who, who I, yeah, I agree. in the armies or, I will, or some branch somewhere. Yeah, I would say nine times out of ten. I mean, ideology matters. Yes, I'm uh, you know openly a more libertarian guy. But like if it's someone with my ideo- ideological beliefs, I'll probably take a veteran who knows their stuff 
over another lawyer. I, I mean, I actually don't give a shit. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not at all opposed to voting for like a moderate Democrat who, you know, has a decent head on their shoulders or, or a moderate Republican. Like either of those, like sign me up. I'll take it. You know, right yeah. now, right now we're in the situation where our, these political parties have just gone gonzo. I agree. Yeah. But at the same time, like your job as a congressman, uh, you know, really is just to vote yes and no on legislation. So I, I do want to vote for the guy who's going to vote yes when I would and vote no when I would and like my own personal, spe- you know, interests. Yeah. And, and I mentioned this to Dan Crenshaw on the podcast and he agreed Justin Amash, who's a congressman in Michigan, I, I, he's the only one I've seen do it, so that's why I'm mentioning him. Everything he votes on, he puts it on Facebook. He, he puts, mm-hmm. I voted yes or no on this legislation, and here's why. Like a quick like two or three sentences on why. I'd like to see them all do that. Yeah, that's the way it should be. I, I mean, the, the direction things should be heading in is that once a month you jump on your smartphone and you vote for the bill. Why do we have congressmen? Well, that's I, why, I actually, do, why do they exist? I believe what's his name, who was very left wing and ran for president, Mike Gravel. I believe that's what he wanted. Isn't it called like direct ballot initiative type of thing where, it, yeah, that's what it is. But people would worry that does lead to mob rule. If you have that as a whole, that's why we have a representative republic over a pure democracy. It could be. Um, I, I think that there was a time where, because we didn't have these communications technologies, you have to elect somebody. You have to have somebody who acts as a representative for a large pool of people. Um, but if you look at what the job our government is doing, it seems like people are very dissatisfied with Congress, that our government really isn't serving the people. Yeah, I mean, I just personally, I, and I, I don't know, I think you do too, but I get maybe not, I do favor a representative republic in a constitutional republic. For example, when you see these surveys online of uh, millennials saying that they're against hate speech and want the government to legislate hate speech, well, what if they have direct ballot initiative that, you know, you could stop someone from saying what they want? I, my belief is that's why we have a constitution. Yeah, we do. And you can't, you cannot pass a bill that violates the constitution. Yeah. So it doesn't fucking matter if millennials vote to, you know, curb the First Amendment. You can't do that. Yeah. So so you would like to eliminate all of Congress. I, I mean, I'm not <laughs> saying, like, we should just, like, fucking take a blowtorch to Congress tomorrow. Yeah. But I'm saying over the long term, we should look at ways that we can eliminate some of these unnecessary gatekeepers in our government and maybe we can have more of a direct democracy. I mean, I'm also a big proponent of having you know, of constitutional democracies, but the future is coming, buddy. You know, the meteor is coming. Let's not be the dinosaur. You know, uh, we're going to have to evolve. We're going to have to look at new systems of governance. Yeah, I just I would not want to see something that resembles mob rule of. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're you can reflect back on the podcast we did with John Robb. I mean, we're already seeing mob rule because our government is failing to provide. So what's happening is that you're seeing individuals, groups of individuals, and these mega corporations jumping in to fill that void, to, to kind of create that social stability. Here's the two things I would like to see happen, and I, I don't know how realistic they are. I don't know if these are realistic solutions, but I agree with them. Um, do you remember there was the Supreme Court decision a few years back of I'm trying to think of what it was called, but it was basically getting corp- corporate money out of politics and it was shot down. 
Uh, I Surprise, surprise. But I agreed with it being shot down because of the fact that it didn't address... Um, it, it didn't address unions having money in politics. So the problem, I think, is typically, this might not be the case now because you look at all the corporate money Hillary Clinton got, but typically big businesses favor Republicans, unions favor Democrats. So if you get all the money out of corporations giving to politicians, I do think Democrats would have a um, basically a step up if they got all this big union money. So I think if you were able to eliminate money in politics completely, get out the union money, get out the corporation money, or just drastically decrease the The, cap of what they could donate, I'd be all for that. But I don't know if it's a realistic thing. The left really doesn't want to hear that stuff about unions. And, I mean, the reason why we can't have police reform in this country, the reason why we can't have education reform in this country is largely due to police unions. Yeah. Like, the reason why we can't take, like, why the hell can't you just fire police officers? Why can't, why can't there be, a, like, strong accountability um, for some of the things we see and, and address some of these issues? A lot of people have issues with law enforcement, including, I'm sure, law enforcement also, there, uh, there are police officers who see ways we can reform. Right? Oh, yeah. I remember um, Ed Mangano in Nassau County, for example, his whole big thing, and he had some corruption issues, but like just going on before that, his whole big thing was low taxes. Like He ran on the tax buster platform, uh, and Republican, but he, he ran on two different you know things on the ballot. But his one of the main things was like, all right, we're going to cut police force in Nassau County. And then the police union was like, whoa. But if you look at Nassau County, and look, I I respect police force, but like Nassau County in general, a lot of these police are just kind of like meter maids, people giving tickets for minor speeding violations. social welfare. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I I do think it's okay to like reduce the police force. If you want to, like, it is a way to reduce taxes. If you're for lower taxes, that money has to come from somewhere. Yeah. You know, you can't just be like, hey, I want a giant police force and lower taxes and like all the, you know, the money has to come. So, so yeah, I agree with you on that, but yeah, it's like when I see the hippies out on the street saying we need to shut down nuclear power plants, I'm like well, fuck is my electricity going to come from? Yeah. Oh yeah. You haven't thought that one through, huh? So then the sec- I said two things. The second thing I'd like to see happen was actually, I've heard it articulated by Jesse Ventura of all people, Oh boy. but I, I like, no, this is not that crazy of an idea. I like the idea and I've never heard anyone say it. Because people say, oh, we need a third party. You know, the two parties have a stranglehold. Once again, don't know how realistic it is. But Jesse Ventura, I've, I've heard say that he'd like to eliminate all parties. And you can only run on your ideology and your own ideas. And it's not, you know, you go to the ballot and you vote for the R, you vote for the D. I think that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, I, I also think it would be great. I hate parties and I actually hate ideologies. I think ideologies are silly as fuck. Um, but you identify as more of a libertarian-minded guy, right? I mean, yes, but ideologies are just a bunch of inconsistent beliefs that get bundled together just to game voting demographics. Like ideologies are for kids, basically. So it's it's so that you don't have to think, so that you can just go, like you said, go and vote for the D or vote for the R. You don't have to think about shit. That's that's why I hate ideologies. They're for lazy people. I think that's more of hating parties, though. I mean, I, I, I consider myself a pretty ideological. Well, how do you consistent. separate the party from the ideology? Um, uh, here's, okay, I, whenever we bring up this stuff. By the way, the people on the podcast are always like, just stick to special operations. Shut don't talk about this up, stuff. Murphy. I guess I don't know what to say. Turn off the podcast at this point because, like, we're done with the special operations stuff at this point. Want to talk about this and why not? 
Um, I, I would separate in this way, and this is just my opinion. I personally look at Donald Trump as a more big government guy, uh, you know, with some of the stuff that he wants to do. Ideologically, I am a very small government guy. I want to see, like, less executive orders, a, a more weak federal government, a more states' rights-minded federal go- – uh, st- sorry, states' rights state government – um, uh, yeah, those are generally my ideology. I'm a like constitutionalist. I'm a libertarian. Like, I think that's a defined ideology that not all Republicans seem to agree with. Democrats certainly don't agree with. Yeah, I mean, the small government, like, you know, you're talking like Ronald Reagan, Ron Bar- Paul, Barry Goldwater. Yes. Th- that Republican Party's gone. That doesn't exist anymore. But uh, it's an ideology. It, yeah, it is. But I mean, how, how does this answer my question about how you separate parties from ideology? Because I think you could be a, you know, you need something to define what what you believe. Like, I agree with you. I don't like labels for everything. But if someone were to ask me, like, hey, how do you look at government? I, I have those. I, I'm a constitutionalist. I'm a libertarian. You know, I'm, I'm small. Yeah, government. it's easy to sum. Yeah. I, well, that's what I'm saying. It's an intellectual shortcut because it's like an easy way to take a, a snapshot and just throw at somebody, I'm this, and they have some sort of, like... Yeah, you need to have some sort of... Some, if, if someone goes up to you, Jack, and says, what's your ideology on government? You have to have something, right? Uh, you can't just say, like, oh, I just go with yeah, the Yeah, that's wind, why so. if you put me on the spot, I'd, I'd say libertarian because I'm probably fiscally conservative and socially liberal, but then there's all these caveats, and we'd have to go issue through issue. For instance, I'm much more hawkish on foreign policy than Ron Paul. Sure. You know, I... I and I, I also think there is some role for government um, social plans or, or, or um, political economy solutions. You know, when we look at places like the Rust Belt, maybe there are options for quote unquote socialism where the government goes in there and like does some sort of like economic stimulus in stimulating new industries and new types of jobs to help those people out. I mean, I think there are roles for government where they can have a um, – a positive influence on people's lives via social programs. And yet I do not advocate socialism or, uh, or like broad social programs. I don't want everybody uh, in America relying on the government that way, but I do acknowledge that there are social programs out there that can be beneficial to people and to society as a whole. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think I disagree with that on some level because I just think of the Solyndra debacle and, like, I don't like the government picking winners. You know, like, Solyndra was done as an effort to, oh, we're going to prop up the solar industry and the, um, you know, wind industry. And it turned out, like, they picked a failing corporation with our tax dollars. Like, I want I don't want to see that. Well, we do that all the time. Yeah, but I, I, I disagree with it. I don't think it's constitutional. I don't think it's... Like, well, you can have corporations bid... Yeah. On the ideas. I mean, there can be there can still be, you know, market solutions within a government initiative. Yeah. But anyway, I I am on the same page with you of of your point of here's how I see it. All right. You can have an ideology, but you could separate from those under that umbrella on specific issues that you may disagree with. Sure. Uh, Sure. I, I may be under the more right wing umbrella on a lot of things. But that doesn't, you know, sometimes when people hear that, they'll, oh, you're against gay marriage then? No, I'm completely for gay marriage. You know, so I, I do think it, it, it makes it easy for us to vote R or D. So the, 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 that's basically why I agree with the Jesse Ventura idea of get rid of all the parties, just vote based on the person and their ideology. But, I mean, or so, their beliefs. So getting rid of parties, tell me how that's constitutional. 
Um, no, I would just. I, well, there's not. Is there anything really in the Constitution? Freedom of that, assembly, buddy. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't. I wouldn't want the government to do it. I don't know. That's a, that's a hard choice. It's fun. Jack and I talk about this stuff before the podcast starts because <laughs> we were talking about <laughs> the government uh, cracking down on fake news and like. Who, who's the arbiter of what is fake news? And, and Facebook and Twitter playing their games. Yeah, and that's becoming a big... I mean, you do see more and more millennials saying, like, yeah, I do want to get rid of fake news. And Well, it, I, I mean, I think young people have probably always been like that. It, it's that sort of, like, passionate conviction, like, I don't like something, therefore eliminate it, outlaw it, get rid of it. Yeah, I, I think a lot of young people would... I, I'd have to really do a, a true study on this but i think they would actually from what i've seen like the idea how in certain countries you can be jailed for example for writing a book denying the holocaust yeah i don't want to see that happen because of the unintended consequences it's, that it's, would bring. Sh- it's short-sighted because yeah, because then what happens oh deny there's people who say denying climate change is like denying the holocaust right so right. then you're going to put a person in jail for writing a book that has a different view on that you know so and it's in it, this is okay so this even gets more interesting when you look in the far fringes both uh, in America, the fascists and communists, and these groups of people exist, they both advocate nationalizing the Internet. They see the Internet and, by extension, social media as a public good, and they want to nationalize all of it and um, put it under, you know, like the post office or something like that. So they these extreme political extremist groups, they both identify with and understand uh, the power of the internet and social media in today's politics, and they want to seize control of it. Yeah, but then the, the question is for those people, for the ideological people like that, like what happens when the leader is now a guy that you don't like right, right. who wants to use that same power against it's, you? It's short-sighted. And to the, the people, let's say today, since this is more topical, people on the left, they say we need to, or I should say some people on the left would advocate perhaps we should outlaw Nazism. And make the um, use uh, public use of Nazi um, symbolism, swastikas, and things like that illegal, or or certain types of uh, Nazi pro-Nazi speech illegal. So what you're saying is that you want people like Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions to regulate speech. Now, if you're on the left, is this really what you want? Like, think think this through, buddy. Think it through. Yeah. <laughs> is this what you want? And, and I, it's incredibly short-sighted. I don't like Nazism any better than, than they do. And maybe, you know, the current president, he, uh, he outlaws a certain type of speech we dislike. But are, am I willing to roll the dice that five administrations from now, that guy is going to be some kind of angel and that he's not going to, you know, drop the hammer on me and you for for doing a podcast like this because we express some sort of dissent with the government. Yeah, it also doesn't. You can outlaw the legislation, but it's it's not going to change people's minds. No, it's going to drive it further underground. And if you don't think there's neo Nazis in Germany, I don't know what the fuck exactly, to tell yeah. you. You're a moron. Because Germany's laws are extremely strict on that type of thing. And it's they, the same thing you said. In Europe, there is a much stronger fascist movement than in the United States. You, you want to know how crazy Look it is? Look at what's going on in Italy right now. Yeah. You want to know how crazy it is in Germany, for example? And I, this goes into, like, my area of expertise as a fan of, like, 80s rock. I don't know if you know this. When Kiss, who, by the way, two of the members, you know, the main guys are Jewish. Yeah. When Kiss plays Germany, they can't have the original logo because it looks like the SS. Oh, yeah, they yeah. They changed the logo for when really? they play Germany. Yeah. 
No shit. Yeah, because you can't have any of that imagery. And I'm pretty, you know, pretty sure two. I don't, I don't even remember Gene Simmons' real name is yeah. Chaim something. Like, pretty sure he's not a Nazi. <laughs> and born no, in no. Israel, he, mother he, is a Holocaust survivor. He, he's a big supporter of the state of Israel. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And, he, and no bigger capitalist than him, for sure. Yeah, I'd, I actually was saying I'd love to get him on uh, Power of Thought. Maybe even on this podcast would be pretty cool. He's I'd like a, to sit down with Gene. He, uh, yeah, he's an interesting cat, and I, I do like that about him that he's kind of like open about all of it. He's like, "Oh, Kiss is a business, brother." You know? Yeah, yeah. He even signs his name with the dollar sign. Oh, really? And, yeah. <laughs> and and he trademarked a certain uh, image of the money bag, is owned by Gene Simmons. Yeah, he's he's the most shameless of anyone about it. I, I read his uh, I read one of his more recent books. But yeah, he's been on Will Cow's show, so I've tried to get him on uh, Power of Thought. Maybe on here would be cool. I'm I'm all for you know because look, we'll always have the special operations guys on. Also, the guys like Matthew Bentley who are veterans writing stuff. But I'm all for like opening it to other interesting people when we can. Who this audience would dig? Yeah, for sure. So. Cool. Well, we went long this one. Political rant complete. Political rants and. Uh, Hopefully the people who write me or or the comments who just say, oh, just stick to soft stuff. Wait, wait. We'll we're, always do that, but, uh, you know. We're, we're not going to read my hate review. Oh, you want me to? Read my hate review. All right. I will read the Jack Murphy hate review. And to be fair, we get plenty of these uh, for all of us. But we mostly get positive reviews. If you want to um, combat that and write a five-star positive review, we'd greatly appreciate it uh, on Apple Podcasts. So, yeah, this is the latest. Uh, all right. And this is from Audio Philly. It's funny. We we get so many positive reviews, and we never read them on air. <laughs> so we're giving attention to the guy who doesn't like us. Uh, so there's this character called Jack, and Jack is in quotes. Quote, unquote, Jack. Who believes himself to be w- the wonderful counselor, the mighty man, the everlasting polymath. Sounds the, accurate. The prince of elites. He cracks me up, really, with his overblown sense of self-righteousness mm-hmm. and natural superiority. Yep. Sometimes he somehow ropes actual human beings into talking to him. Yeah. Let the guest be your guide. If the guest is of interest, then listen to this. Try to miss the opening yammer from Jack and his lackey, Ian. Ian alone would probably be okay. Unfortunately, Jack is omnipresent, well, as befits a superior being. I don't know what kind of accent he's putting on, but it's highly annoying. That's northeastern. <laughs> if the owners, managers, grand poobahs of this outfit want to bring it up a notch, get a new, quote, star. Bro, he makes me sound like Dr. Manhattan in The Watchmen. <laughs> like, I'm, ju- I'm, I'm, I'm just a being of pure blue light hovering above all of you. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why the dude has his panties in a knot, though. Like, what, what does he even mean? I, I, I guess he looks at you as, like, what we would call a coastal elitist. A coastal elite? Yeah. Man, I, like, my mom was a waitress. My dad was a carpenter. Like, I don't live in Trump Tower, bro. Yeah. But, okay. Well, please keep the five-star reviews coming. Uh, we love getting those. But I, I, I actually do read every single review and you know how do you do why do you do that to yourself ian i like to see what the people are saying don't read the comments you don't yeah, read well the you know what to be fair if we're going to talk about this sometimes people have guided me in the right direction there's some good stuff yeah in there, because yeah. i like to see what the audience likes and um look there's people who who like this type of thing when we go outside of our normal thing and talk about different things there's people who don't but then there's when i see like an overwhelming part of the audience um saying something i i 
I take it's like um, to it. reading my book reviews on Amazon. There's sometimes great. sometimes yeah. there's like three star reviews. And if you read it, like the person actually has like some valid points and you can actually learn something from it. It's, it's you can't write a book that appeals to all audiences. But yeah, some of those people who give like lukewarm reviews, it's like, OK, I see what you're saying. Yeah. The biggest of which for me was when I came on board and. You know, there when something new comes to something that people are listening to, there it's going to be like overwhelmingly a little bit like, "Hey, we want the old thing back." Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I read a lot of those, and it shaped how I wanted to do this show because I was like, "If this is what the audience wants, then this is how I'm going to do things." And um, yeah, you know, for example, this audience there there shows where it's like a more of a back and forth with the guest, and they don't let the guest go. Like when we had Evan Barlow on. An answer to a question could be 10 minutes. Yeah. I've learned from, from reviews from everything, this audience really likes that. They don't want me to interrupt or you to interrupt when yeah. a guest has, like, a really good train of thought for 10 minutes. And, like, in the past, there's been times where that type of stuff has been interrupted and it gets a really negative reaction from the audience. I've learned, like, don't do that. Let these guys yeah. go because they have just great gems. And we have, we have an opportunity with this podcast to have some, like, really savvy guests on. And we're not limited by time or commercial breaks or any of that kind of stuff. So, uh, like, Eben Barlow is a good example because that guy really knows his stuff, and he doesn't grant a whole lot of interviews. So, I mean, you want to let him talk, let him get his point across because he has some really important things to say. Yeah, so stuff like that, like, early on when I would see, like, honestly, like, Ian, don't interrupt the guest here. I'd be like, okay, fair point, and stop doing that type of thing. And uh, But, no, I, I don't let it... Uh, get to me whether it's positive or negative i think like doing this with, for as long as i have like it creates a confidence in like i have an idea of what sounds good <laughs> uh or, or even for example there's people who want to hear um you know maybe like george hand on with another delta force guy at the same time and i've always kind of put my foot down and like i just want one guest on skype at a time it yeah. just becomes too much overlapping noise uh i like something I learned when I was in, you know, getting a degree in radio at Hofstra was like some of the times where you're having the most fun on air and everyone is laughing and having a great time is sometimes like the worst, most unlistenable radio. Yeah. And when you have too many people on there, everyone's talking over each other. Yeah. I, I hate those fucking panels on Hannity, to be honest, where it's like, it's a bleacher of like 20 people and everyone wants to get their time in. You know, oh, yeah. yeah. Let's so, pass the microphone around. Yeah, so I remember one, I always say, like I remember one where there were military guys on the panel. It was Nick Irving was there, John Gillum was there, but then there was like Michelle Fields and Joe Takapina, A-Rod's lawyer, and they're asking questions about ISIS, and it's like Michelle Fields and Joe Takapina hogging. <laughs> and I'm like, why do I care about their opinion on ISIS? <laughs> you know, and so I let that be a guide for me on here, for example. If we're talking about something that's Jack's expertise or an audience, I'm able to sit back and let you guys go. If I want to go on a rant, as I did earlier, about Satmar Jews, I know more than you guys. So... <laughs> All right. Hope you guys enjoyed this. We will be back next uh, episode with a guy who served in the British Royal Marines, um, became an amputee, and went on to run marathons, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. I have his book over here. Where is it? Here we go. You'll Never Walk by Andy Grant. Oh, and you you know why that's the title? I'm sure we'll get into it. Because um, they told him he'd never walk? No, no, no. This is pretty crazy. He had a tattoo on his leg that said, You'll Never Walk Alone. 
And then when his leg was amputated, ironically, the tattoo became "You'll Never Walk." <laughs> Holy shit! Yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. Because when you see it, you're like, "That's not a really good title." But then when you hear the reason for the title, you're like, "Wow, that's powerful." That is fucking unreal. <laughs> well, thankfully, that turned out not to be true. Yeah. So we'll, we'll talk to him, uh, Andy, next episode. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.